We're here to turn our hearts to the Lord this morning. We'll be in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 8 through 13. Isaiah 6, 8 through 13. I'm going to be referring to my notes probably a little bit more than I normally would this morning because this is um, a significant passage of Scripture. And one, anytime I come to a place that is of great significance, I want to be careful what I say. And um, there's a lot of preachers that don't use notes, and I'm not one of those guys because you, you have to be careful with what you say when you're talking about the Bible. And so I want to be as engaged with you as possible, but I also want to be right in what I say. And so uh, this is important this morning, and I pray the Lord gives you understanding of what is being said here. Many people, when they read Isaiah chapter 6, stop with verse 9. And they never, I'm sorry, stop with really with verse 8. And they never read what we're going to read here today. And so they completely misunderstand what is happening in this whole passage. In fact, a friend of mine called me from another place in this country about a, something that he's overseeing now, which has this, here am I, send me verse inscribed in a marble monument in the center of there. And he knows that it's a complete misrepresentation of this verse. And now he's in charge of this place. He says, what should I do with this? Because uh, now this thing is inscribed here in the middle of this place, and it has nothing to do with what the Bible is teaching here. There's an conversation. So may your hearts be open to what is being said in the Bible this morning. Please stand to honor the Lord as we read his word. Remember from last week that Isaiah is, is seeing a vision. He is before the Lord and has seen this great vision of the holiness of the Lord in his throne room. And he has been forgiven of his sins. And now the Lord says this to him in verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy. Blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. So after Isaiah's sins have been forgiven, the Lord calls and says, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Interesting that the us is used there. It's my understanding that that is speaking to the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Uh, three persons, one God. And God is speaking with himself. Who will I send? And after God has forgiven and removed Isaiah's guilt, he is eager to serve the Lord. And he says, here I am, send me on what you would have me to do. And this is joyful. There's a desire to serve the Lord. When he has been forgiven and is in the presence of the Lord, he wants to serve the Lord. And that's the natural reaction of every person that comes to salvation in God. When they know that they have been given a new heart in Christ, they want to go and serve the Lord. They want to honor him. It is a privilege to serve the Lord. And I would ask you this morning, are you eager to serve the Lord as Isaiah was? 
Are you eager to go and do what God would have you to do for him? Or is your life full of excuses for why you are not serving the Lord? Or perhaps full of a great many good intentions, and you think that those good, good intentions amount to something. But good intentions that are never fulfilled mean nothing. Isaiah is eager to do God's purposes, not his own. And that is very important. We must be eager to do what God would have us to do for him, not what we want to do for God. Let me, let me back up and say that again. We must be eager to do what God would have us to do for him, not just what we want to do for God. The Old Testament is full of much idolatry. Many people that are trying to do something for God that they want to do for him in the way that they want to do it, but they're not doing it according to the way that God has commanded them or called them. They're doing what they want to do and expect God to just like it and accept it. And there are a great many people today that are still doing that. This is a self-centered, man-made version of religion. I'm going to do what I want to do for God and God better like it. And that is not what the Old Testament or the New Testament is calling for us to do. For when God calls for us to serve him, as we're going to see in this passage, what God will require of us will always require great sacrifice. What God calls us to do for him will always require great sacrifice. It will require us to take up our cross and to follow after Jesus. The same level of sacrifice that we're going to see here in Isaiah's life is what Jesus calls of his disciples. If a person does not take up his cross and follow after Jesus and die to himself, you cannot be called a disciple of Christ Jesus. If you think that what God's calling you to do is just this great thing that you always wanted to do anyway, you're probably missing the call of Jesus in your life. Isaiah had a hard and thankless calling. And he raised his hand and said, here I am, send me. He was earnest and he did go and do everything that God called him to do. But he had no idea what God was getting ready to say to him. What God says to him in verses 9 through 13 is that he's going to preach his whole life and ultimately the people of the nation will not listen to him. That is not good news, folks. For God to call you and tell you, you're going to go and you're going to preach my word with all your heart for your whole life and nobody's going to listen to you. In fact, they're going to hate you for what you say to them. And that's a hard word. But was it right that Isaiah went and did what God called him to do? Are we blessed today? Did God use his ministry? Absolutely he did. It's one of the most important prophetic books in the whole Old Testament. And there were purposes that God had for his ministry. And we're going to see what some of those purposes are this morning. But it was not an easy thing, not a glamorous thing, not something that was loved by the public that Isaiah went and did for God because it's what God called him to do. The nation will not turn and repent. Why? What we see in verses 9 through 11, I'm sorry, 9 and 10, is that the nation will not repent because God will not open their eyes and God will not unstop their ears and he will not give them hearts to believe. And this is hard for Isaiah. He says in verse 11, How long, O Lord? How long is this going to go on? How long am I going to preach and no one is going to listen to what I am saying? And he says that it will be until judgment. 
But this idea of the preacher longing for the people to hear what he is having to say is always the case with every preacher and every prophet. No one that truly knows and loves the Lord ever stands up in a place like this and calls out to people and doesn't care whether they listen or not. Anyone that is authentic in their faith wants people to hear and to listen and to come to salvation. How long, O Lord, until the people will listen? It's the same attitude Jesus had as he reached the nearing the end of his ministry and so few people had really believed in him. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent into it. He sees the great hardness of the heart of the people that he has been preaching to. The same with the apostle Paul. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. This is the prayer and the desire of every person that preaches the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there will be a a response. There is an urgent plea and a desire for a response. How long, O Lord? Well, the answer for Isaiah's question is that he will continue to preach until judgment comes on this nation. It says, until cities have been laid waste without habitation and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. I'm going to read to you from the very end of the book of Second Chronicles, which is the end of the account of the nation of Judah. And it says this, this is about this judgment that God is speaking of here to Isaiah, which is in the future for Isaiah in the past, obviously for us. Second Chronicles thirty six seventeen. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of the princes and all the people he brought to Babylon And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. And he took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths all the days that it lay before it desolate to keep Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So what we have here is the idea that this nation is so wicked and godless and the people have reached such a point that God is not going to relent from judging the entire nation. It's going to be generations into the future from where Isaiah is, but it is going to happen. And it's such an interesting thing. It talks about Sabbath rest for the land. That's the idea that the people in the land are so wicked that they have polluted the land and the land needs a break from the people. And two and a half generations of people are gonna be out of this land before the Lord is gonna bring them back and then restore the nation. And you can hear more about that. I preached about uh, Ezra and Nehemiah uh, some, about a little over a year ago, some about Daniel, all about this period in the nation of Israel. And if you haven't, if you don't understand that period, I encourage you to go listen to some of those messages. But the Lord is telling Isaiah that this judgment on the nation is going to come and that he is not going to relent and bring the people back to himself truly and fully until after this judgment has occurred. But he does not tell Isaiah when this is going to be. 
Isaiah has no idea that this is not going to be in his lifetime. Don't think that people in other times of the Bible didn't walk by faith just like you and I have to walk by faith. Isaiah was told to just go and preach to a hard-hearted people that aren't going to believe you and just don't stop. And I will take care of this in my time when it is my choice to do so. And so Isaiah does. And he goes and he preaches to the people and he prophesies. He bears witness about the Lord. He speaks the word of the Lord to the people. He gives all kinds of prophetic words about Jesus, about the Messiah to come. We're going to get to some of these beautiful, beautiful passages later in the book of Isaiah, speaking about who Jesus is going to be. But other than a small remnant, which is spoken about here in the end of chapter, verse 13, and which we've spoken about in weeks previous, there's always a remnant of people, always a group that still believe in the Lord. But other than this small remnant, his words will be ignored. God will not act to change the hearts of the people. By the time of King Josiah, who is after the life of Isaiah, the people have become so godless that they have literally lost the word of the Lord, the physical copy of it. When they decide to renovate the temple because of repentance in the heart of Josiah, they're amazed to find the, the Bible. And they bring out these early books of the Old Testament and dust them off and reread them because they have been completely forgotten and lost. And that is the wickedness of this nation. Well, let me shift gears. Because to understand this passage more fully, what we need to do is go to the New Testament. It's a basic aspect of Bible interpretation that God's word is a progressive revelation. He gives us his word in the Old Testament and then more in the New Testament. And the word that comes to us in the New Testament is used to interpret that which is in the Old Testament because there is greater light shown on the things of the Lord. And it is of tremendous significance that verses 10 through 13, some aspect of those verses are quoted in every single one of the Gospels. And they're all quoted in specific, excuse me, occasions related to Jesus explaining why he teaches in parables. So that's important. When you have a big passage in the Old Testament that is used significantly in the New Testament, we need to pull these things together and understand what is happening here. So when people ask Jesus, why are you teaching in parables? He quotes these verses. And the same thing that I'm telling you now, Jesus pulls the thread on more and explains more of why it is that this is happening. And this is really important. We're going to begin in Matthew chapter 13, verse 10, if you want to turn there. Matthew chapter 13, verse 10. It's mentioned in Matthew 13, Mark 4, Luke 8, and John 12. But we're going to start in Matthew 13. I'm going to tell you, these are hard passages. These passages make... Isaiah 6, even harder. You might say, well, we're going we're to get some good news when we come to Jesus in the New Testament, and it always is good news, but it's not normally the news we expect. And there are two reasons why passages in the Bible can be hard. First is that they're just hard to understand. There are plenty of you know, cryptic passages in the Bible that are difficult to understand, and many different people have different interpretations, and that's one type of hard passage. That's not this one. The other type of hard passages in the Bible are passages that we know exactly what they're saying, but they are so offensive, and we don't want to believe that what is being said is what is actually being said, and we just don't know quite what to do with it. 
And this is, these type of passages are hard because I believe it's our general expectation as human beings that when we read the Bible, we expect God to basically be like us. And when we read the Bible, we expect for the things that we read to basically fall in line with what we already believe. And that when we come across something that's substantially different than where we are, it becomes hard for us. It's like hitting a speed bump with your car, and you're just like, whoa, what was that? Like, I'm not sure what to, what to make of that. But the Bible calls us to not make God in our own image, but instead for us to conform ourselves to who he is and what he is doing. And the world has always been full of and is full of now with something the Bible calls ear-tickling preachers. Ear-tickling preachers are preachers that will tell you what you want to hear and what you already think that you know is true. And their whole point is to not unsettle you, to tell you something that's going to affirm you where you are and leave you where you are. And they will skip passages like this, which is really important because if this is Jesus' explanation as to why he's preaching in parables and preaching in parables is one of the most significant parts of his teaching, then this matters and we shouldn't skip this. Here at Redeemer, we believe in the authority of God's word and scripture and that we want to be like the disciples where we sit at Jesus' feet and when we come across a hard passage, we say like what Peter said, to whom will we go for you hold the words of eternal life? And we wrestle with the things of God And we desire to learn and to believe and to grow. And all of this takes progress in our life. None of us jump to where we need to be in any one step. It is a progression. But Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 through 17 says this. Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. Then the disciples came to him and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and their ears can barely hear, and their eyes have closed, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So verse 11. They ask, why is it that you're teaching in parables? And Jesus says, to a certain group of people, it has not been given for them to understand. Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled in what is being said here. There's something about Isaiah's prophecy that was fulfilled in the past and something else that is being fulfilled in the time of Jesus. And he is very specific that they have ears to hear, but they do not understand. They have eyes to see, but they are not able to perceive. And they will not be able to believe because they cannot hear and they cannot perceive. To the disciples, however, and those who are in Christ, it has been given to know. 
As it says here, it says, the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been revealed to them. They can see with their eyes, they can hear with their ears, and they do have a heart that is true in their faith and believing in God. What Jesus is outlining here in these verses is, is that he is intentionally teaching in parables to separate two camps of people. He is speaking in parables to one group of people, and then a, a separate group of people, they say, what did that mean? And then he tells them what it means. Let's turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, 36 through 43. Uh, the, other, the ones in Luke and Mark are basically the same as what I just read to you in Matthew. But Luke chapter, I'm sorry, John, John chapter 12, verses 36 through 43 is, is slightly different. John chapter 12, verses 36 and 36b and following. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so, so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what you have heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. And Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even the authorities, believed in him. But for the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man rather than glory that comes from God. And so John points out that after much teaching and many miracles, this is late in the ministry of Jesus, people have seen everything that anybody could possibly ask for as a miraculous sign. They have heard much teaching directly from the mouth of Jesus, and it says still they did not believe in him. So the question we should ask is why? Because if people have been in an audience watching Jesus perform miraculous things and hearing teaching directly from his lips, you can't say that his ministry was deficient or that his teaching was deficient. So why is it that these people are still hard-hearted? Why have they not come to salvation at this point? Well, it is because, as it says in verse 39, they could not believe. And again, he quotes Isaiah from the passage that we were looking at before. They could not believe. They were not able to to believe because the Lord had not given them a heart to be able to believe. Those that are not able to understand do not believe. Those that are able to understand do believe. And what I'm trying to impress upon you this morning is that from Isaiah and all through the ministry of Jesus and throughout the Bible, people coming to salvation is not arbitrary. And it's not related to the excellence of the teacher. It is related to God's will and God's intentional action in the hearts of people. And so to understand this, we need to look at some theological points. Theology is the study of God. Who is God? When we look at God in all the scriptures, what do we learn about God in the scriptures? And it is consistent in these categories that we're going to look at this morning, original sin, regeneration, and limited atonement. What is being taught in the Bible? So let's look first at original sin. This is absolutely important. Who is this audience that Jesus is preaching to? Who are the people that I am preaching to today in this world? Who did Isaiah preach to? 
It was people that were born into sin. The scriptures tell us that when Adam and Eve fell into sin, their nature was corrupted. And every human being that has been born since then is born into sin. We're born with a corrupted and evil heart. The world will tell us that people are not that, that they are blank slates, or that they are naturally good, or that they are, can be anything that they choose to be because they are at least neutral. But the Bible does not teach that. The Bible teaches us that we are all sinful and that we are sinful by nature, that we choose rebellion every day and that this process is greatly helped along by spiritual evil in the world that is stoking the fire of the rebellion that is in our hearts. And if you know any theological point to be true, you know that this is true. No one is making you lose your temper. No one makes you tell a lie. No one makes you lust after things that you ought not lust after. You know at, at night when you're alone by yourself that you're a sinner. You know it. And you know that when you blow it and something terrible happens that you just can't blame it on anybody other than your own sinful self. And God help you, you're a sinner. And you know it to be true. So how do we leave this situation? How do we enter into the new life of Christ? Well, Jesus is abundantly clear that we must be born again. Understanding that phrase is incredibly important. You must be born again. When a man named Nicodemus came to Jesus and asked him about these things, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That's an extremely basic statement. If you're not born again, you're not entering the kingdom of God. So if you want to enter the kingdom of God, we better understand what it means to be born again. A lost sinner cannot cause new life to arise in their heart. That is the central issue of these passages here this morning. Isaiah is preaching, preaching, preaching. Jesus is preaching, preaching, preaching. Paul, preaching, preaching. Me, preaching, teaching. The people in the audience of all of these people, including Jesus himself, cannot make new life come up in their heart. They cannot cause themselves to become undeaf. They cannot cause themselves to gain their sight. They cannot cause themselves to pass from death to life unless God works first. God is our savior. He is the one who acts to cause new birth. As we've seen in 1 Peter chapter 1 some weeks ago, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. As Ryle writes, nothing short of a new heart and a new nature implanted on us by the Holy Spirit will ever make us real disciples of Christ. Let me say that again. Nothing short of a new heart and a new nature implanted in us by the Holy Spirit will ever make us real disciples of Christ. God in his mercy must choose to act. And thank God, he does. This is why he sent Jesus to be the savior of the world. And he acts continuously through the world to bring people to himself. So this is original sin. This is something about regeneration. And third is something about limited atonement. Atonement is the act of Jesus upon the cross, Jesus bearing the sins of the world in his own body on the cross. 
And this is a limited atonement. What that means is that not everyone in the world will be saved. If you want to hear somebody preach about how everyone in the world will be saved, no matter what they've done or what they believe or anything, you can go to a Unitarian Universalist church down the street. I think there's one in downtown. And they will tell you that no matter what anybody believes, thinks, does, everybody is going to heaven, so just don't worry about it. Let's go play golf this afternoon. I'm serious. Like, it's a, it's a message of just let's all just get along. That's an unlimited atonement. The Bible does not teach that. It teaches that there is a wicket, a narrow gate to pass through, and not all will be saved. We are all on a sure path to judgment day when we will hear one of two verdicts, either eternal punishment or eternal life. And there is a difference between the two things. Not all of Israel was saved. Those that Isaiah, I'm sorry, yes, Isaiah preached to, not all of those were saved. Many, many were not. That's the point of the sermon this morning. Those under Jesus' ministry, most were not saved. Most did not respond to what he said. Those under the apostles' ministry, not all of them were saved, and now not all people will be saved. The application of what Christ has done on the cross will not result in every human being being saved. And so the issue, the, the crux of what we are dealing with this morning is who does the limiting? How is the atonement of Christ applied? When a preacher preaches and God's word is sown and goes out, who is doing the limiting? How does a person become born again? We so badly want it to be us, but what the Bible teaches is that it is God. The Bible says that it is God who brings new birth to the heart, that causes us to be born again, that makes the deaf to hear and the blind to see and takes those that have hard, dead, rebellious hearts and makes them alive in Christ Jesus because he is merciful and he is kind and he is full of love and grace. God sent out Isaiah to preach his whole life and only a tiny remnant would believe. Is this because Isaiah was a bad preacher or he had terrible people skills with the king? No. It's because God was not moving to bring people to himself. God the Father sent Jesus the Son by his choice and design. And yet by the end of Jesus' ministry, very few people had come to salvation. He hung alone on a cross. How is that? Was there something wrong with his miracles? Were there not enough miracles? Was his preaching not adequate? Was his timing bad? That's heretical to even say something like that. It's not true. It's that Jesus was not yet calling people to himself at that moment. So how does this work? Is this fair? Because we struggle with these things. I struggle with these things. I think some of the best ways to understand this is by looking at examples. And so I want to look at a few examples here. The first example has to do with the 12 disciples of Jesus. The 12 disciples of Jesus, there were 11 that came to salvation and one that did not. Judas, Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. All 12 were with Jesus throughout his ministry. 11 of them were called by name. Matthew, come follow me. Peter, come follow me. They were sought out and selected by Jesus. And they were given new birth. As it says in this passage, these, all four of these passages, they were given access 
according to the will of God, that they might have ears to hear and eyes to see and come to understand these things. And this was intentionally done so by Jesus. And they responded to these things. We see their progression in the Gospels. It's not like, bam, super, super follower of Jesus. It's a slow, bumpy progression of Jesus saying, you guys have so little faith. Would you please believe more of what I'm saying? But it is authentic faith. It starts out like a grain of sand, like a mustard seed, but it grows. Repentance, faith, obedience. But it is so marked by God's sovereignty and calling out these particular people. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. He is calling and bringing people to himself. With Judas, he's in the same scene as everyone else. He hears the same words. He witnesses the same miracles but he is not given a new nature by God. His heart remains hard. It is known, and this is really important, it's known by Jesus from the beginning that Judas will be the betrayer. He doesn't say, well, we'll see how Judas does over time, whether Judas picks this thing up or not. Now, I'm gonna gonna spend some special time with Judas and see if he can understand this. And if he doesn't understand it, then this is not gonna be good. No, he says from the beginning, you're gonna be a betrayer. But yet, I'm bringing you into this midst to teach us something about what is happening here. And so there is no amount of teaching or no amount of miracles that Jesus could have done that would have brought Judas to salvation. Does he deserve the damnation that he receives? And the answer is yes. Judas did everything that he did willfully and intentionally. There is human responsibility in the lives that we live. He went out and sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver because he was greedy. And he wanted a place in an earthly kingdom that he wasn't going to get. And so he was going to go show Jesus what was up. And so he sold out Jesus. And then he hated himself for doing it. And then he went out and killed himself. Was Judas's heart neutral? Not at all. Judas was evil. He was, it says he was possessed of Satan himself at one point uh, at, at the time of the Last Supper. Another fascinating example from the Bible is Nicodemus, a character we're given much uh, insight into his character. He's different for a different reason. Nicodemus comes to Jesus in John chapter 3, and he is a spiritual leader of the people. He is steeped in Old Testament scriptural learning. He is obedient meticulously to all the traditions of the Old Testament people, and yet his eyes do not see, and his ears do not hear, and he does not have a heart to believe. And he comes to Jesus, and he's like, who are you? What is going on here? And Jesus tells him, if you are not born again, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Telling one of the great spiritual leaders of the Jewish people, if you're not born again, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. God, by his spirit, must impart spiritual life or you can never on your own believe in Christ. God, by his spirit, must impart spiritual life. You can never get on your own by study or by toil, but only by his choosing. Let me look at one other thing here that I think is very important. And I think this is part of why this doctrine is so hard for our day and age. And it's that we live in a day and age that is eat up with entitlement. What is entitlement? Entitlement says, I deserve something even though I've done nothing for it. Entitlement says, I am a teenager, so I deserve a car. Somebody buy me a car. I am a student, so I deserve a college education. Somebody pay for it. 
and because I'm of age and it's my right to go and do this. Or I am a person, and since I'm a person, I deserve somebody to give me money so I can live my life because I'm entitled to it. Or I'm entitled to walk into the hospital and have any procedure I want because I just am a person and I'm entitled to that. Keep going down the line with the entitlement mentality that we have in this country now. What, is an, what does an attitude of entitlement lead to? Well, it leads to ungratefulness. It leads to discontent. You would think if somebody just kept giving you everything you wanted, you would be happy, but that's not what entitlement leads to. It leads to discontent. It leads to people that want more and more. And as we, if you look much at church history, you'll find that this was not always the attitude of people. But the more that a culture is eat up with entitlement, the more that creeps into the church. And people say, because I am a person, I am entitled to the salvation of God. God ought to save me because I'm worthy of it. And if he doesn't, I'm going to be upset with him. I deserve this. And if it is not given, I will say that I have been wronged by God. But that's not what the scriptures teach. What the, what the scriptures teach us is not entitlement, but worship. What do I mean by that? When we understand that salvation is truly by grace, which means it's favor that I don't deserve. It's the total opposite of entitlement. I don't deserve any of this. I am a terrible sinner. God help me, I'm a sinner and I know I am, and I know all these awful things are bound up in my heart, and I get down on my knees, and I repent of my sins, and ask God to forgive me, and I know I don't deserve this, and I know that God has given me new life, and I truly and earnestly am forgiven of my sins, and salvation has come to me by grace and by grace alone. You know what you want to do? You want to worship God, you want to say hallelujah? You want to sing loudly for when we've just sung here. You want to pray and you want to go tell somebody else about Jesus because I didn't do this. God came to me in my low and broken place and he gave me new life and I want to tell you about what God has done for me that he might do that in your life as well. And this is cause for worship. It's cause for thanksgiving. It's cause for, for joy for what God has done for us. I want to read a passage uh, from a sermon related to some of these doctrines that Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote. He says this, People often argue that this doctrine of divine election and choice leaves no place for evangelism, for preaching, for the gospel, for urging people to repent and to believe, and for the use of arguments and persuasions in doing so. But there is no contradiction here any more than there is in saying that since it is God that gave us the crops of corn in the autumn, therefore the farmer need not plow and harrow and sow. The answer to which is that God has ordained both. God has chosen to call out his people by means of evangelism and the preaching of the word, and he ordains the means as well as the ends. And he goes on and talks about the great missionary societies and the great evangelists of the past that were all believed in what is being said here. They all believed that God is the author of salvation. He is the Savior. Salvation is God's work. It's not Isaiah's work. It's not Paul's work. It's not my work. Jesus is the Savior. He is saving a people of his own choosing out of this wicked world. 
The people of this world are evil and they're evil by their own doing. They're evil by nature and they are responsible for their wickedness. The means by which God is saving people out of this world has never changed. It is by preaching and it is by evangelism. And so we go and we share the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is no coincidence that in each gospel, this prophetic word of Isaiah that is quoted by the New Testament authors remembering the words of Jesus, that Jesus then goes on to explain the parable of the sower to them. Isn't that fascinating? He says, I'm preaching in this way as I've just talked about, but let me explain to you what the parable of the sower is. And the parable of the sower is a fascinating parable. It's the word of the Lord being sown in the hearts of people, all kinds of different people in different places and their hearts in different situations. But the Lord causes the word to take root in the souls of certain people's hearts and it's not arbitrary. It's the work of the Lord. And so this morning, I sow the word of the Lord in this church. I proclaim to you the good news of the salvation of Jesus and that God has sent his son to be the savior of the world. And as Isaiah pled, and as Jesus pled, and as Paul pled, and as Peter pled, I plead with you this morning to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, to repent of your sins, to put your faith in him, and that today, if you hear and feel the conviction of the Lord God on your heart, that you would believe these things and that you would not harden your heart against the Lord, that you would respond to God's work and that you would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Broad is the way of destruction and narrow is the way of life and few are they who will find it. Let's pray together.